Dr. Edith Perez works hand-in-hand with Ms. Palmieri and was the principal investigator of the historic NCCTG trial that was one of four major randomized trials demonstrating a profound impact of the anti-HER2 agent trastuzumab in patients with HER2-positive tumors. I met with Dr. Perez to learn her perspective on this research, and she began our conversation by providing an overview of what happened. Adjuvant therapy of patients with positive disease has been revolutionized over the last few years due to clinical trials that build on the biology of breast cancer, clearly demonstrating that by adding the monoclonal antibody trastuzumab to other existing therapies such as surgery, chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, radiation therapy, decreases the risk of relapse by about 50% and improves the odds of survival at the four-year point by about 35%. So at this time, the great majority of patients diagnosed with HER2-positive breast cancer should be receiving combination chemotherapy with trastuzumab to optimize their outcome. There are a bunch of questions that have come up from people in practice related to these trials that you mentioned, and of course one of which that you ran. One has been the question of how long to use trastuzumab. Right now, the standard in the United States, and I think everywhere, is about a year. Where do you think that's heading? For now, the one-year duration of trastuzumab is the standard based on the strength of the large clinical trials that have been performed. However, we're very intrigued by data from two very small trials that have looked at shorter durations of trastuzumab. In one trial, the Finher study, nine weeks. In the E2198 trial, 10 weeks of trastuzumab concurrent with taxane chemotherapy in each one of these studies suggesting that there may also be benefit to a shorter duration of trastuzumab. However, I view these two studies as what we call hypothesis generating and not to be utilized for standards of practice at this time because the statistics evaluations of these trials demonstrate that although the improvement may be about the same as in the longer duration trastuzumab trials, the 95% confidence intervals are quite wide, between 20 to 80%. So I think we need bigger studies so uh, evaluating it, this. So it actually might not be good as a year, but we can't really tell at this point. That's right. It may only be 20% good, but we don't know at this time. So there are some very large phase three trials currently ongoing and being planned, mainly outside of the United States, to look at this issue. No, and of course, there's a big trial out there looking at one year versus two years, the HERA study, that I guess that's going to be very interesting. It'll be coming, hopefully coming up. When do you think we might see results from that? We expect that to be available within the next year. The data monitoring committee meets every six months, so we keep waiting. So you want to make a prediction about that? I think Trastuzuma may be a little bit better over two years compared to one year, but it's going to be a matter of how much better, whether it would warrant really the incorporation of this agent for the longer duration. Now, another major question in this situation has been the choice of chemotherapy to combine with trastuzumab and the question about cardiac toxicity. We have now one trial that included an arm that didn't have an anthracycline, the BCIRG study. They use the so-called TCH, docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab arm. Where are we right now in understanding the benefits of this regimen versus the anthracycline regimens and the risks in terms of cardiac toxicity? Yeah, very important trial you know, that needs to be put in the context of all of the other trials performed. And I think the data are very provocative, thinking that this might be a good alternative. 
We need to wait until the final data from that study because we've heard two interim analyses, so it will be good to look at the final publication or presentation. At this time, based on the data from the other trials and even the 006, you know, there is a risk of cardiac toxicity associated with the use of trastuzumab. But in the context of the benefit of this agent, the cardiac problem is very small. However, we need to continue looking for ways to minimize that potential problem for our patients. But I would almost, in quotation, I would never not give a patient trastuzumab because I'm worried about cardiac toxicity. Because cardiac toxicity may be in the range of one to three to three and a half percent, which tends to be transient, occurs essentially while we're giving the medication. We haven't seen any delayed cases of congestive heart failure associated with the medication. And we need to balance that with the absolute improvement in disease-free survival of 12 to 14 percent that we're observing. So although we are concerned about toxicity, we need to think about keeping our patients alive first. I guess one of the issues is going to be what happens to these women in the long term. Are we going to see problems 20, 30 years from now? Right now, what do we know about? You mentioned that most of these patients do have reversibility. How often do we see situations where people die from it or people have serious clinical problems with it now? And what do you think about it as moving forward? Great question, because certainly in NIDA31 and also looking at the other trials, in terms of the number of patients who have died of cardiac toxicity, it's in the range of one to two patients total. Whereas if you look at the deaths from myelosuppression, in some of the arms, they have been 10 to 15 patients who have died of myelosuppression. So again, there are two important toxicities that we need to figure out how to best manage. I guess another common question is about the patient who has the smaller node-negative tumor, particularly under one centimeter. What do we know about the natural history of patients with these tumors when they're HER2 positive and the impact of trastuzumab? None of those patients were enrolled in the clinical trials, and it was based exactly on that. We did not know, we still don't know clearly, the natural history of small HER2-positive tumors. So at this moment, we are not routinely recommending trastuzumab chemotherapy for everybody who has a tumor less than one centimeter. We're taking into consideration the size. You know, is it close to one centimeter, such as 0.9 versus a 0.3 centimeter tumor? But also to address this issue, we are looking at our database at Mayo right now, at the three Mayo sites, pulling out the tumor specimens of patients diagnosed with invasive breast cancer and looking at the natural history of HER2-positive versus HER2-negative in the context also of estrogen receptor status. When we wrote initially these adjuvant trastuzumab trials, we wanted to enroll patients who we felt had a high enough risk of relapse because we didn't know about how efficacious this drug was going to be. Now I think we'll be much more liberal, even though in the ALTO study we're still enrolling patients whose tumors are greater than one centimeter. So we're having that cutoff. Another common question relates to the older patient, the frail patient, the woman who normally you would not be thinking about giving chemotherapy to. Maybe she's got a couple positive nodes, and people bring up the question of using trastuzumab without chemotherapy. What do you think about that? Actually, I would dissuade that approach based on several facts. Number one, certainly in preclinical models, it is clear that trastuzumab works best when given in combination with chemotherapy. Second, from the clinical trials performed of trastuzumab as a single agent, you know, the activity in metastatic disease is only in the range of about 20 to 25 percent, whereas if we use trastuzumab concurrent with chemotherapy, response rates range from 50 to 80 percent. And the third is that if I have a patient 
who is deemed to have high possibility of relapse due to the breast cancer, and we think the patient should receive trastuzumab, we need to optimize the trastuzumab by administering at least some concurrent chemotherapy. So it will be a matter of making a selection of what chemotherapy might be less detrimental to the patient, but I would really use them together. What about the issue of using neoadjuvant therapy? For example, patients with larger tumors want breast conservation when the tumors are too positive. Yeah. Trastuzumab is given for one year. So I think, based on the data, that physicians, if they're going to use the anthracycline taxane model, they can use the anthracycline and then add the trastuzumab to the taxane, even as neoadjuvant setting, that's appropriate. Certainly another choice would be just to use the anthracycline first and doing the surgery and then proceeding with the taxane in combination with trastuzumab. So I don't think we need to be in a rush to incorporate the trastuzumab before surgery because, again, it will be given for a long time. I guess the thing, I've been impressed by the responses that have been reported in the neoadjuvant setting, even with trastuzumab alone. Yeah, you know, there are some very interesting data because the group at the University of North Carolina actually reported a study in clinical breast cancer looking at AC followed by weekly paclitaxel trastuzumab. And the response, the pathological complete response in that study was only about 25%, which is similar to many other regimens. Then we have the data from the MD Anderson group, and they enrolled a different patient population in the MD Anderson study. As you know, the majority of patients have very small tumors, which actually can skew the interpretation of the ultimate you know, pathological complete response. But in that study, given trastuzumab concurrent with an anthracycline, they had a very high pathological complete response rate. One of the things we're learning these days is that Pathological complete response may not be the only market that is important for long-term outcome. It's going to be really the gene profile of the tumor. So going back to your question, I think it's appropriate to consider trastuzumab as part of neoadjuvant therapy, but I think it can also be used as adjuvant. So HER2-positive disease is actually the minority of breast cancer, 20 25%. Let's talk now about HER2-negative breast cancer, particularly in the adjuvant setting. And I want to begin by asking you about, I guess, really, I think is the most common situation in terms of markers and nodal status that we see, primarily, I think, because of mammography causing earlier diagnosis, which is the node negative, ER positive, because most women have ER positive tumors, HER2 negative tumor, a common clinical situation, and ask you sort of how you think through treatment recommendations in that situation. Yeah, hormonal therapy remains the mainstay of treatment for uh, these patients, depending on the size of the tumor. These days, we're concentrating on the evaluation of the tumor by molecular profiling, and there are two techniques currently approved by regulatory agencies. Number one, the MAMA print technology, which has been approved as a predictor of natural history. And it's interesting related to this technology is that it used to require frozen specimens, and that's no longer the case. They can do fresh tumor specimens that are placed in something that is called RNA later and sent to the company for evaluation. So this should facilitate incorporation of mama print as part of our day-to-day strategies. And then the second technology that has been approved is the Oncotype DX, and that's another gene profile that has been approved as a predictor of outcome for patients who receive tamoxifen. We are using these two gene profiles in our practice, and we are very supportive of the two ongoing worldwide trials to evaluate 
whether we can utilize these technologies to better select patients with ER-positive breast cancer that may benefit from chemotherapy. And those trials are the TaylorX trial in the United States and the MINDAC trial in Europe. I guess what we've seen is a real shift in clinical practice in these patients in terms of the utilization of Ocotype. I think mammoprint's kind of just coming on board. I'm not, from what we know, in terms of our patterns of care surveys of oncologists, as people are using Ocotype quite a bit, mammoprint at this point is really more in a clinical trial setting. But we see a lot of oncologists using it, and we see that when they use it, which is, I guess, in situations where they're not sure whether they want to use chemotherapy, it's changing what they do, you know, not a small number of times. Maybe one out of four times they'll either give chemo to somebody who they wouldn't have given it or not give chemo to somebody who they might have given it to before. How do you see this from a patient care point of view, assisting in making these decisions? I think it's very important for us as clinicians and also for our patients to try to assign or recommend therapy based on the individual characteristics of the tumor whenever we can. So these new technologies allow us to do just that. So it makes sense for us to proceed in this direction. That actually brings up the issue of measurement of estrogen receptor. My understanding also is that sometime in the near future, Actually, Oncotype is going to report quantitative ER as part of the report. And I think people have looked and wondered whether or not this kind of technology maybe is going to be more effective in identifying ER positive, maybe in the future HER2 positive tumors. What do you think? I think it's going to be interesting. Actually, both the Oncotype DX and the Mama Print technologies have the ability to quantify estrogen receptors. We just kind of need some more data to see whether that marker measurement is going to be the driver of response to hormonal therapy versus other markers that may impact cell growth, such as HER2 and other proliferation markers. Let's talk a little bit about hormone therapy because there's a lot that's happened in that regard. And I think that one of the biggest things has been just the change in perception about ER-positive breast cancer and particularly the natural history and the potential to intervene in the natural history way down the line, 10, 15 years down the line. This is pretty new stuff. This is only in the last few years that I think we really kind of started to get some numbers behind all this. Can you kind of summarize where we're at right now? Yeah, there has been an increased understanding that breast cancer is different than other tumor types in that relapses after initial diagnosis of breast cancer remain a problem for 5, 10, 15, 20 years later added to the fact that if a woman is diagnosed with invasive breast cancer, recurrent breast cancer remains the number one reason for mortality. In the context of estrogen receptor modulation, recent data have demonstrated that longer suppression of estrogen with the use of selective estrogen receptor modulators, aromatase inhibitors, are having an impact on patients' lives. So I envision a time in which we will look at breast cancer as a chronic disease, even if after it's resected, that we treat with low doses or either antiestrogens or other therapies to prevent these late recurrences that we're seeing 15 to 20 years later. Now, there are a bunch of practical questions that are coming up in terms of long-term therapy. One of the biggest ones is how long do you need to use hormone therapy in the adjuvant setting. And when we were using tamoxifen, it kind of centered down on five years. Now in postmenopausal women, by far the most common therapy, the aromatase inhibitors, there are trials out there looking at whether it should be more than five years, but people still have to make decisions. 
the data started coming out about six years ago, so there are a lot of women who are coming up to five years. Where are we with that? Yeah. Right now, for the majority of patients with no negative breast cancer, the duration of aromatase inhibitor is about five years. People are really thinking seriously about longer duration, especially in the setting of not positive breast cancers. There are two very large trials ongoing, NSABPB42 and the MA17 re-randomization trial that are looking at duration. So in the next year or so, it will be great if we enroll all our patients to this trial so that we can get an answer quicker because we need to potentially look at some maybe downsides of long-term aromatase inhibitor therapy. And the two that concern me the most are, number one, impact of bone, and uh, number two, the potential impact on cardiac function. So these trials really need to look at these two issues. In terms of both of those issues, now the bone, when the first wave of trials, they just kind of let things go. I mean, they didn't really focus that much on bone. Now, today, is, you know, everybody's, even if you don't have getting aromatase inhibitor, people looking at bone density, using bisphosphonates, aggressively kind of manage that problem. With that type of approach, how much of a risk do you think the AIs are, particularly in terms of fractures? I don't think the AIs are really very risky drugs, but they do have the side effect. I am concerned about thinking of utilizing bisphosphonates for 10 to 15 years in women because we just don't have the knowledge of the potential side effect profile of these drugs, not only on the bone density, but of the structure of the bone, which we do not readily measure by doing a bone mineral density. Certainly, there's also the small problem, but clear problem of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which we need to keep paying attention to. You also mentioned cardiac issues, and there have been kind of little sniffs or whiffs about whether or not, you know, the aromatase inhibitors trials, there is an increase. If it's there, it doesn't seem like it's that great. What's your take on that right now? I think these drugs are very safe from the cardiac standpoint when used for five years. Beyond five years, we need a little bit more data. What about the issue of delayed use of aromatase inhibitors? Maybe a woman who, for whatever reason, and never got any kind of endocrine therapy, who's maybe seven, eight, nine years out, maybe had a node-positive tumor. Would you consider starting an aromatase inhibitor at that point? You know, there are very little data to justify such approach. However, there is a trial that either will be started soon or has been initiated to exactly look at this situation. I think it makes sense for this to be an approach that is going to be viable for our patients. I just think to get the solid data, it's going to be really hard. But it's something I will consider for my patients, yes. And the other thing would be there's a ton of people out there who've gotten adjuvant tamoxifen in the past, often for five years. And again, there's that window after that five years of treatment where we know the woman's going to be at risk of relapse. What are your kind of guidelines about approaching that decision and the woman who's, you know, two years down the line, five years down the line from having had adjuvant tamoxifen? You know, as we typically do in our practice, we need to go over the risk-benefit ratio, the data from the clinical trials, and what we think about the data, although the data are not available. But in the context of short-term AI, being efficacious after five years of tamoxifen, the context of the overall safety of these drugs, I will feel comfortable discussing this with our patients. Another issue that there's been a lot of attention to has been the arthralgias and the aches that occur with the aromatase inhibitors. You know, this happens in women who aren't on aromatase inhibitors too, and sometimes it's kind of hard to dissect that out. What have you seen in this regard with your own clinical experience? 
So it will be great to be very meticulous related to capturing the data of joint pains before we start the aromatase inhibitors because there's this ill-defined syndrome of some joint pains that may occur after completion of adjuvant chemotherapy, which we haven't quantified very well. Then to really capture how many patients who get aromatase inhibitors have either new development of arthralgias or worsening of arthralgias, and then to look at the natural history of this syndrome on behalf of our patients. Some people have started to talk about two potential issues that need to be looked at in more detail. Number one is the potential impact of vitamin D levels. And number two, the potential impact of the timing of taking the aromatase inhibitor. Some people have speculated that it may be associated with cortisol levels. So perhaps if women take the aromatase inhibitors in the afternoon, instead of taking it in the morning, that may make a difference. It's better in the afternoon? That is better if people are taking it in the afternoon. Than in the morning. Yeah. This is a theory right now that we hope to be able to look at in a more structured way to get the appropriate answer. It's a pretty weird syndrome, too. I can't really, I mean, can you say sort of where it occurs usually geographically? or It seems like it's very hard to define. Very hard to define. And again, because there may be 30% of women who already have some joint pains. Remember, all these women are postmenopausal. And this is the age at which joint pains tend to start occurring in persons in general. Yeah, actually, in, in the attack trial, in the tamoxifen group, 30% of the women, where I think it was 26% of the women, had significant arthralgias. Exactly, exactly. And we've had patients who develop arthralgias associated with aromatase inhibitors, and then we switch them to tamoxifen, and they get worse. So again, this is an important question for our patients. We counsel our patients related to this issue, but again, we should quantitate the status of our patient's health before we start this drug so that we avoid confusion. You mentioned vitamin D. Do you utilize vitamin D? I don't. You know, I practice in Florida when the sun is there all the time, so very few of our patients, I think, have true vitamin D deficiencies. You know, you mentioned chemotherapy and arthralgias, and there was actually just a paper on arthralgias published in the JCO, and one of the things there was focus was on the aromatase inhibitors, but actually, if you look in the paper, there's a pretty high incidence of arthralgias, particularly with the taxanes. Have you observed that clinically? This is one of the things that we have not been asking our patients in a systematic way. So a questionable patient brings it up, but we're starting to recognize it more. What about the future in terms of endocrine therapy? What are some of the clinical trial questions or even future clinical trial questions that you think are going to be interesting to look into? Perhaps the most important one will be to find molecular predictors of benefit. In addition to the gene profile, to look at enzymes involved in the metabolism of these agents that may be helpful to understand the efficacy. You know, this has started to be looked at in the setting of tamoxifen, in the setting of aromatase inhibitors. So we'll see what the data show in the next few years. I guess one thing I was curious about is whether we'll ever see the introduction of fulvestrant into the adjuvant setting. The drug's been around for a while for metastatic disease, and there are a bunch of trials out there looking at the combination of an aromatase inhibitor and a fulvestrant. Where do you think that's heading? Many years ago, there was higher enthusiasm than there is today for the introduction of fulvestrant into the adjuvant setting. And I think one of the trials that dampened the interest was the trial that compared tamoxifen to fulvestrin in the setting of metastatic disease, which failed to show an advantage of fulvestrin to tamoxifen. Then people thought, oh, perhaps we should do the loading dose of fulvestrin. But then we have the data from the EFFECT trial in metastatic breast cancer comparing fulvestrin to exemestine. 
after disease progression to uh, non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors. And even in that trial, with the loading dose of fulvestran, there was no benefit compared to using exemestane. So we view the data now as fulvestran appears to be perhaps equivalent in the overall picture to tamoxifen, perhaps equivalent to aromatase inhibitors, but not better. And it carries the issue of increased cost and the need for the patients to come to the clinic monthly for an injection. But, you know, if there are patients who have difficulty with tablets, certainly this could be an alternative. But in terms of taking it to a major trial, there's still interest. But the trials have not been initiated. Yeah, it's interesting. In biologic therapy and all different kinds of tumors, we hear about this concept of vertical targeting and combining of biologic agents that hit pathways in different ways. And, you know, to me, hormone therapy is kind of the original biologic therapy. But, you know, you don't hear too much about combinations of them. You would think, I mean, I guess and I want to ask you about premenopausal patients. There you see the combination of ovarian suppression or ablation and tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors being looked at. But in general, there doesn't seem to be that much interest in combinations. Yeah, I think the data from the combination arm of ATAC had a lot to do with us not pursuing that approach. And that was tamoxifen and an aromatase inhibitor. That is right, yeah. And there is an ongoing trial now looking at fulvestrin in combination with an astrozole. So there's some interest, but we're a little bit cautious. What about the issue of endocrine therapy in the premenopausal patient? What would you say is standard, and what are some of the research issues being looked at? The standard approach for estrogen receptor positive premenopausal breast cancer remains tamoxifen, specifically five years of tamoxifen. There is significant interest to explore the potential incorporation of ovarian function suppression, either with tamoxifen or with an aromatase inhibitor, and that's why we've been conducting the SOFT trial, SOFT, comparing these three approaches, tamoxifen, ovarian ablation plus tamoxifen, or ovarian ablation plus exemestine. In other parts of the world, actually, ovarian ablation with tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor is standard, but the data really do not justify this at this time, in my view. But SOFT is accruing very well, and we hope that uh, accrual will complete within the next year so that we can get an appropriate answer for our patients. There was a very interesting manuscript published in the neurology literature. First author was Rocco, one of our neurologists at Mayo, which performed an epidemiological analysis of cognitive function in the setting of premenopausal women who underwent oophorectomy in Old State County in Minnesota. And it was actually quite interesting for us to see that women who underwent oophorectomy actually had a higher risk for cognitive dysfunction later on. Was there a control? No, they just looked at cognitive dysfunction based on whether they had had oophorectomy or not, and there appeared to be a relationship that was statistically significant. So in our practice, tamoxifen remains the standard practice. I guess there's a group of women kind of in between postmenopausal and premenopausal. It's very common, which is the premenopausal woman who then ceases menstruation with chemotherapy. Very vexing question. Should they then be treated as postmenopausal? How do you deal with that? The approach we have been taking in these women, we look at estradiol levels, we look at FSH, and we look at LH. But even those three markers are really not perfect in terms of defining menopausal status. So our approach has been to start a therapy with tamoxifen and wait a couple of years to, quote-unquote, be certain if there is through advance to menopause, and then at that time we introduce the aromatase inhibitors.